If you've been to Grinnell, you know how windy it can be. But even the most piercing winter winds pale in comparison to the force of the cyclone that ripped through town in 1882, leaving a trail of destruction in its path. We could take it slowly This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On today's show, we're going to talk with Allison Hake from Special Collections and Archives about the impact of the 1882 cyclone that tore through town, killing 39 people, including two college students, and destroying dozens of homes and the entire college. But the town and college, led by J.B. Grinnell, recovered quickly, receiving donations from all over the country to support the rebuilding process, and they came back stronger than before. The buildings that rose up in the immediate aftermath of the cyclone are now gone, but the legacy of this important turning point in the college's history remains. We'll also talk with Chris Jones, the college archivist, about working with the minutia of college history and his understanding of the college from the vantage point of the archives. That's coming up next, after I remind you that the information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. Grinnell, the town and the college, looked a little different in 1882. 354 students, 17 faculty, and only two buildings, West College and Central College, made up what was then Iowa College. The date is June 17, 1882. Students are finishing up exams and getting ready for commencement. And the weather is kind of weird this day, but Nobody really takes note of it, and we don't, you know, there's no Doppler radar to say, hey, some weird things are happening out in western Iowa. The weatherman didn't hop on the radio? Nope, (laughs) nope, no radio, you know, so they just know that it's a a really hot day, and the barometer's kind of weird, so then a bit after 8.30, that's when things really go south in terms of the conditions of the weather. Okay, we're talking 8.30 at night? Yes, yes, in the evening, yeah. I mean, okay. there's some people that say, okay, well, at 8.44, that's when things get underway in Kellogg, okay. which is about west of here. Yeah. About 10 miles. And so, but I don't know how you could be that precise, especially, yeah. um, I mean, given human memory and who was looking right at the clock right. when this happened, was your clock accurate? I don't know. Yeah. So. But those that's what we mm-hmm. have to go off of. Yes. Okay. Yep. That's what we know. So 150 miles west of, of Grinnell over in Carroll mm-hmm. County, the storm was brewing and it made its way across the state, uh, forming multiple tornadoes along mm-hmm. the way. And here is where the story maybe departs from what most people know about the history of mm-hmm. Grinnell's cyclone. There were actually two tornadoes, as best we can tell, that mm-hmm. met in Grinnell. So not the cyclone, but the cyclones. So yeah. what gives with that story? S.H. Herrick, who's the son of S.L. Herrick, um, who Herrick Chapel's named for. Uh-huh. And he's one of the Iowa band. He's a trustee member. Um, it's in the 1890s. He writes a piece for the Annals of Iowa. And he recounts. And so he's done a bunch of research and he's talked to people all across the state. And so he's kind of tracked the path of this storm okay. to figure out what happened. And so it seems like one tornado kind of forms north of town. One kind of comes from the Kellogg area. And then... They meet kind of right about 8th and Broad, which was the edge of town at the time. Uh. And so, but that's also kind of right where the campus is. Right, yeah. So, that was unfortunate for campus. Um, and so, it, it seemed to people who lived here that, you know, the tornado kind of took a U- U-turn, but it's actually the, the two tornadoes. Ah, uh, okay. And that's kind of why there's an odd path of destruction, to, it seems like, to people. Gotcha. Um, not that tornadoes move in predictable ways. Uh-huh. I mean, that's kind of a hallmark of them is that they don't. I mean, Joe Wall in his book talks about, yeah, it's probably two tornadoes and the Annals of Iowa says it, but we always just say the cyclone of 1882 because right. it's kind of one big catastrophic event for the town and the college. Yeah. So. Yeah. Unless you're, you know, digging back into the the history of it, maybe, you know, for our purposes mm-hmm. today, cyclones, cyclones, like it's the impact was the same whether it was one or two. You <laughs> yes. Know? So. Um, why do you think that mm-hmm. information was kind of like lost or, or forgotten that it was two tornadoes? Well, even the media presentation at the time, there's a great um, newspaper page excerpt we have from Harper's Weekly at the time. And this is an out east publication, you know, writing about this massive storm. But 
it's got an illustration of one tornado uh-huh. um, and, you know, and, and devastation and destruction of the town. And it's because it's the illustrated news. And right. so it gets lumped in because the destruction is all one place. Right. Um, at least here in Grinnell. Um, I mean, Malcolm to the east also gets hit really badly. Yeah. I mean, other towns and farms along the way, but Grinnell really gets it kind of the worst. Yeah. So. So what was the extent of the damage on campus and throughout the town? Sure. Well, it always sounds a little funny to say campus was destroyed when it was only two buildings uh-huh. because that isn't quite as devastating as, as it would as, be as, today if campus as, were yes, destroyed. Yes, if campus were tornado. destroyed and you say destroyed and you think, oh, so many buildings gone and it's only two. But it was the only two buildings that were there. Right. So, you know, that is the end of that Iowa College campus. Yeah. Um, so there are actually students in the buildings, um, particularly, I believe it's the West College building, that uh-huh. there's students up on third floor um, when these tornadoes hit. And like, there's seven or eight of them actually in the building. Yeah. And they come down with the rubble. Um, all but one are fine. And then one is, you know, pinned kind of lower body mm-hmm. and he's paralyzed. He's taken to Professor L.F. Parker's house where he later dies that night. And then there's another student in the Central College building, and they're attending. A, there's a literary society meeting of the, I may not say this right, Philologian? Yeah, the Philologian. Philologians, yeah. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> not a word that rolls off the tongue. No. <laughs> and so they're at that meeting, and they see it coming. And it's not exactly two different accounts. They, they compliment each other, but it's not clear exactly what happens to him. It kind of sounds like he was maybe kind of sucked out a window, um, like a large kind of picture window, not uh-huh. just, you know, a small window or out of a doorway. And so he's thrown quite a distance. Yeah. And so the paper describes him as being like fearfully mangled, which is really horrible. Yeah. Um, and so he dies pretty quickly after that, uh-huh. thankfully for him. Um, he doesn't suffer for a long time. Um the Central College building. Um, I mean, they're both they're both destroyed, but Central College is, College is a little more um, like I mean, the windows are gone and half the building's gone, but it's standing a little more. You can tell it was a building. Ah. <laughs> um, but then, because it had the scientific equipment and the chemistry materials down in the basement, it then catches on fire. Uh-huh. So it's really an insult to injury sort of situation. Where yeah. it's like it wasn't bad enough; it got knocked down. Now it's also on fire. So then you lose everything that's in, that's in there. Yeah. So that's what happens um, on campus. So town, there's about I think it was seventy three. 73 houses, yes, um, that are destroyed. So the Grinnell Herald at the time, it's pre-Herald Register, and they report um, there's a Grinnell Herald extra the day after the cyclone, and then there's an extra number two and number three, although number two and three are actually a lot of the same material. So it's this very extensive list of who has died, who is injured, and maybe in what way. They're the buildings that have blown down, the houses that are damaged. Um, they've got some lists of damage that's out in the country, outside in the county. You know, kind of a list of who is in the hospital, um, you know, when funeral services are going to be. Uh-huh. So it's, they really have all the details. So they're a really great primary source yeah. for going back and looking to figure out how the town was dealing with the aftermath. Uh-huh. Um, so one thing that um not wouldn't say good um but the the downtown business area is really spared okay it's really it's homes that take the brunt brunt of the damage and so the newspaper reports i mean there's um 37 townspeople killed and then the total is 39 with the two college students Uh and um it's about 150 total injured in the town of grinnell okay and um S.H. Herrick, who's the one writing in the Annals of Iowa, he thinks that because most people had a cellar or a storm cellar at the time, a lot of people went down there. Okay. And he thinks that's the reason death toll and injury toll isn't higher than it is. Yeah. So. I mean, it is already pretty high. But uh, mm-hmm. I know at least with the college, remarkably, it was only only two of the 354 students. Yes. And there's... Another reason for that, there which is... is. I we, forgot to mention it. <laughs> we have to thank the Grinnell baseball team. We do. <laughs> <laughs> now, the kind of backstory there is that um, President George Magoon was very strict 
um, very no-nonsense man. Uh-huh. And the the rules of the time for Iowa College is that there is no away games with sports. It's only intramural athletics. Right, no intercollegiate activity, but Yep. intra. Yep. And so in defiance of this rule, the baseball <laughs> team had gone to Tama to play an away game. And so as they're taking the role of, okay, who's here, who's wounded, they notice there's a lot of men missing. And, you know, the first thought is, oh, no, this is what's horrible, what's happened. And then, you know, a student kind of is like, well, they're in Tama. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, but nobody got in trouble because in this case, you know, you can life, forgive perhaps. it. Yeah, because yeah. it, it saved their lives. So, yeah, um, I read that the damages were estimated for the college at around $81,000, which in today's money amounts to like $2 million or something in that ballpark. But the mm-hmm. insurance would only pay $10,000, a fraction of, of the cost. So they had some mm-hmm. some rebuilding to do. But before the rebuilding process really began in earnest, the college had something else to attend to, commencement, which yes. went ahead as scheduled <laughs> like yep. a week after the cyclone. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there any description of what commencement was like or kind of the atmosphere? What It's three days later, actually, okay. because um, President Maguna is not going to be deterred. You're <laughs> going to have commencement as normal. Um, and part of the reason commencement was actually early that year. It had been scheduled early because there was going to be um, a referendum in the state about whether you could sell and the quote is used, but I suppose they mean drink. <laughs> alcohol. And so because Congregationalists are pro-temperance, pro-prohibition, yeah. um, they want to make sure they all get to the polls. And ah. so if you need to have everybody voting, so they move up commencement. Okay. So there would have been a little more time in between, but there isn't in this particular year. So baccalaureate and commencement go on. Um, President Magoon, I mean, his office is gone, so he lost whatever his speech was going to be. So he uh-huh. rewrites it, and he calls it, And God Was in the Whirlwind. And it's about, um, I mean, he has a very Old Testament view of things, um, like the book of Job being like, well, this has happened, and it's terrible, but you know, he stands over the wreckage and says, you know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Uh-huh. So he sees it as, well, this is what was supposed to happen, and it was terrible, but we will move on, uh-huh. and we will rebuild. I imagine it was a pretty subdued commencement. Uh-huh. Um, the students who died, we know one was finishing his first year, and I'm not sure about the other. There was very little I could find on him. Um, but I imagine with such a small group of students that that would be especially difficult time. Yeah. So, because you would have, you had funerals maybe the day before, Mm -hmm. and the next day you're having commencement. Yeah, yeah. And even if they didn't know the students personally, I imagine a lot of Mm -hmm. the students, you know, were in a whirlwind of their own with the destruction that happened on campus and Mm -hmm. just kind of a a crazy, Mm -hmm. crazy event. It's interesting that um, that they still went on and went through with commencement because I know the only time that the college has not had commencement was um, at the height of kind of anti-war sentiment on campus and Mm -hmm. and they didn't have a commencement that year. But after a cyclone that devastated most of the town, (laughs) they still were like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to have this ceremony. um, Yeah. It's an interesting juxtaposition. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not sure what it says about what it says about the college or maybe (laughs) President Magoon at the time. But um, so word of the cyclone or cyclones spread far and wide. You mentioned Harper's Weekly. How did people find out about the damage and begin to pitch in to help? Because eventually there's donations coming in from across the country. Yes. Um, One of the ways, especially around the state, there's a lot of destruction anyway. So uh, Governor Sherman puts out a proclamation detailing a little bit of the damage and calling um, for people to, you know, make monetary donations to help in the rebuilding process. Uh And... Kind of right after commencement, J.B. Grinnell starts heading east in order to raise money. And so his first stop is in Chicago. And he goes to the Chicago Board of Trade. And my understanding is it's maybe the first and only time they've actually ceased trading while uh-huh. someone addressed the floor. And so he, you know, makes a plea that our campus has been destroyed. Our town has been severely damaged. You know, could you help? And so there's a lot of sympathy Um 
I think rightfully so, um, yeah. <laughs> among um, the people that he speaks to, um, both in Chicago and moving farther east. Yeah. Um, you know, this little thriving town on the prairie has had such an unfortunate event that it's it's a high loss of life. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, like I say, when you say our whole campus was destroyed, that sounds very dramatic. Yeah. But a lot of money does kind of come in for rebuilding both for town and for college. Yeah. Um, so people, especially around the state of Iowa, are very generous. And, um, you know, even people, you know, on the on the coast, yeah. out, out east. And a lot of money comes from there. And um, so then um, JB's friend, John Blair, gives $16,000, which is quite a bit of money, considering insurance was only going to pay out about $10,000. Right. Um, and that money um, goes to building of Blair Hall. Uh-huh. So post-Cyclone, we get Alumni Hall, which becomes the music building. We get Chicago Hall, which becomes Magoon Hall. And we get Blair Hall. And none of those are still standing, which Uh is really a shame um, because Magoon's very architecturally interesting. And Blair was just beautiful. um, But I understand had structural problems. Right. So had to go. Yeah, those have, I think most of them were Mm -hmm. demolished so we could have Berlin. (laughs) Yes, was was Grinnell's recovery and rebuilding process notable in terms of its expediency compared to like nearby towns that maybe didn't have as much destruction? Mm-hmm. But you know, Grinnell, Grinnell kind of, especially the college, mm-hmm. arose you know from the rubble strong. It, it did, yeah. It it really comes back stronger than it was. Um, they have more buildings. I mean, they have three versus the two that they had, uh-huh. um, and so. There, there is a real expediency to how quickly the rebuilding happens because, I mean, five, six years, and it's a completely different place. Yeah. Um, you know, they've replanted the trees that they lost. They have these three new buildings. There's a larger number of students. And <laughs> J.B. Grinnell actually says that Cyclone was a real windfall, um, which is maybe a little... I would temper that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> considering the death toll. Yeah. But... Um, but it does really change the face of the college. Uh huh. Um, so we're sitting here in the summer of 2019, and we're looking back at the cyclone mm-hmm. of, of 1882 through the lens of the exhibition that you curated here in, in Burling Library with images from our collection and other local resources as well, I take it. Mm-hmm. Why are we revisiting this event 130-some-odd years later? Well, <laughs> the real reason is because... I thought it would be a good topic for a small exhibit. That is a perfectly sound um, reason, I think. <laughs> I mean, there aren't, we don't really have artifacts per se, but we do have a lot of photographs. Right. There's not a huge number of photographs from campus the way it looked before the cyclone, but there are a lot of the destruction. Mm. Um, particularly, we have set of somewhere between 30 and 40 stereoscope cards. And so for people who aren't familiar, they're kind of like a little viewfinder. Yeah. And um, they give you, I have glasses, so I've never been able to get close enough to actually see (laughs) the image as you're supposed to see it. Yeah. Um, But it's supposed to be slightly 3D. Right. It's kind of an early iteration of that. Yeah. Um, So this was something that, it's a little bit of a disaster tourism by proxy, is Mm. that these stereoscope cards were made and then people can look at these and see pictures of the destruction and see what happened. Wow. So those are interesting. And I've got the stereoscope. We have stereoscope viewers in special collections that people can come in, look at these photographs. Uh Um, We have a couple sets and I know that um, the historical museum here in town also has some of those same um, cards that were manufactured. So... We don't have anything like, um, I think the college bell is damaged, I believe. I mean, we have that, but not in special collections. That's just sitting in noise. Yeah. I know the Historical Museum has a jar of blueberries that the the story (laughs) is that it's swept away and it's deposited somewhere, you know. In Wisconsin, perhaps, because I know debris did fly as far as Wisconsin. Yeah, from the storm, maybe not from Grinnell, but there's certainly, like, there's a photograph um, from a woman um, 
it ends up in Belle Plaine, but it's a photograph of a woman from Grinnell, and it has the Grinnell Photo Studio name on the back, uh-huh. um, apparently still legible. So it's someone mails it back to, to the post office, and so that's how they know some debris made it that far. Wow. Um, so yeah, but this this jar of blueberries is, um, I'm not sure who shared this information originally, who uh-huh. started the story. Um I'm a little doubtful as to the credibility, but we'd have to look back, maybe see the accession records and uh-huh. see, like, why do we think this is the case? Right. I mean, it's an old jar of blueberries. <laughs> it's definitely I, old blueberries. I don't, Nobody wants I, to eat them. <laughs> I would not. I think you'd be quite ill. So I'm not sure why we think it made it through a storm. Maybe it did. Yeah. I don't know. Dubious provenance, yeah. but we'll, we'll let that one be for now. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a good visual um, exhibit and that's kind of what we try to do with summer ones is not necessarily a lighter topic but something that has um, good visual appeal Uh so did you find anything new or discover anything about the cyclone while organizing the collection and going through these resources um certainly the idea of that it's actually two cyclones yeah um i had read through parts of joe wall's book before certainly doing research in special collections um but it was kind of one of those Oh, yeah, it was too. That's mm-hmm. interesting. That part, um, certainly, and I'd never um, read the Annals of Iowa article before. Okay. So that just had a lot more information about how wide the storm was and how much of the state it actually impacted. Yeah. Um, so that information was new. So that was interesting because kind of when we hear about it, we think of it as more Grinnell-centric. Yeah. And it certainly had a very big impact here. But it's a big storm and it ends up, say, up in Wisconsin. So yeah. it's so that was very interesting to yeah. read about and to really look through all these photographs more in depth than I ever have. Mm-hmm. So. In the exhibition catalog, you say that the cyclone is one of the defining moments in the history of Grinnell College. Mm-hmm. What lasting impact do you think it had um, for today or or maybe mm-hmm. you know the past century of the college? Well, I think the rebuilding process was really defining because. I mean, a small Midwestern campus, um, not all small Midwestern colleges made it um, because, I mean, a lot are affected by fire, by tornadoes, other weather events, or just um, very small enrollment, difficulty, you know, getting people um, to enroll, to come teach there. Um, And it really um, kind of spreads the word about Iowa College as it was at the time, uh-huh. up until 1909. And um, these buildings that were post built post-cyclone are part of campus up until about 1961, which in the grand scheme of things is not actually that long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's plenty of alums who still remember these buildings on yeah. campus that were part of their Grinnell experience. Um, and then also another big way that I think um, it stays with us is the cyclone, the yearbook, the cyclone. Right. Yeah, perhaps the only like tangible legacy that we can mm-hmm. really see of the cyclone. But yeah, the student mm-hmm. the student yearbook and magazine named in its honor. Yep. 1889 is the first time they call it the cyclone. And they write a nice little explanation in the beginning, you know, saying like, okay, you might think this name's a little silly and inappropriate, but actually... Um, We went through this horrible event, and we have rebuilt, and we are stronger. Uh So it's meant to be both a reminder of, you know, the challenges and destruction we as a campus in town faced, but also that you can rebuild, and you can build it back stronger and be stronger for what has happened. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the college obviously made out okay and came out, like Mm -hmm. you said, perhaps stronger afterward when they rebuilt, but it could have easily meant the end of the college. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would have been really easy to say, oh gosh, I mean, they'd already moved campus once from Davenport to the town of Grinnell. It would be very easy to just say, okay, clearly we are not meant to exist. We are just packing it in. Um, But they don't. They, I mean, there really, there seems to be no question right from the get-go that we are going to rebuild. Uh So, which I think takes a lot of strength. Yeah. So... Well, Allison, thank you for putting this collection together and helping us think about this devastating but really important event in the history of the college. You're welcome. 
Allison Hake works in special collections and archives, and she put together an exhibit this summer about the cyclone, using sources from the time period to take a fresh look at the impact of the cyclone. The exhibit is no longer on display, but you can still find the images and documents in the archives in the basement of Burling. And there's pictures of the destruction and rebuilding process on Digital Grinnell. You can find those on the webpage for this episode as well. The Grinnell College Special Collections and Archives offers students and scholars access to printed materials from the 15th century to the present, manuscript collections of individuals and organizations, and historical records of the college and local community. Books, photographs, scrapbooks, diaries, audio, visual materials, and other ephemera provide rich materials for investigation. Chris Jones, the archivist of the college, took an interest in libraries from a young age, but it took a little prodding from his mother to get him to his current position at Grinnell. Jones was supervising the scanning station for the Internet Archive at the University of Illinois, but was looking for new opportunities. I was actually visiting my parents in Iowa City one weekend, and my mom was reading the Sunday paper, and she saw a a job ad for a library assistant at, at Grinnell College Libraries, and she took my car keys and wouldn't let me leave <laughs> the house until I had uh, written an application letter. Um, that's one way to do it. That's yeah. Well, I got the job done, so I I, I am thankful for that. Um, yeah. That's funny. I'm not going to let my mother <laughs> listen to this interview. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> so she doesn't get any ideas. Keep my keys close at hand. That's right. Um, so how long has there been a college archivist? Can you give me a, a brief history of the archive here at Grinnell? When, when did the college start collecting and organizing this material in a comprehensive and concerted manner? And, and when did there become a person who was in charge of that? That's a good question, and I, I'm forever uncovering more information about the archive. Um, so I I had been under the mistaken impression that it had more or less formally coalesced under Ann Kintner, maybe back in the 70s. Okay. But speaking with another librarian about a, a specific type of call number that is used in special collections currently her understanding that it was in use long before she arrived in the 70s and was likely around in the early 1900s and it's only it only seems to be used in the college archive so i don't have any firm facts but i would say that it uh it probably started in the early 1900s and i don't think it was a formal place. I have a feeling it was probably a, a collection of papers housed in somebody's office. Like uh-huh. a lot of things do start, but it really use of the college special collections, I think really picked up probably in the seventies. And we, we didn't have a really public accessible existence. I think until the uh, Burling Library was renovated in um, the early 1980s. Uh-huh. And I may be wrong, but before that, there was the Grinnell Room, which was a uh, a place to go for, I think, rare and special books. Mm-hmm. But the archive aspect, I'm not sure where that was housed. Again, probably in somebody's office. Yeah. But in the, then in the 1980s, uh, when a bunch of campus offices moved out of Burling basement and that space was renovated. Then we were given uh, a vault facility and our, the reading room that we still have. So yeah, that's kind of, those are the facts as far as I'm aware, although uh-huh. half of them may be wildly inaccurate. So <laughs> I'm, I'm still learning myself. So I, yeah. you know, I'm, and I, if anybody has any more information, I would love to know more about it. So. Yeah. 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 It's, it's like meta history, the archive of the archive. Right. Yeah. And I think oftentimes organizations or or businesses are kind of even if they're involved in history, like they're sometimes the least aware of their own history because it, sometimes it's just not there. You know, the it's, documents aren't there. Well, it's very true. I think that's a I think that's a very good observation, and I think um, another reason that that may be is that. Uh, Sometimes you're just too close. Mm, yeah. You're too close. And uh, nobody thinks 
oh, you know, posterity is really going to want to know about this photograph or this document in 50 years. Uh Um, Or you're too busy and you're too sort of in the thick of things and nobody sits down and says, we probably should be recording or documenting the decisions that we're making. Yeah. So, um, no, I think that's I think that's a good observation. And I've I've run into instances of that in the past. So I think you're right on. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about your job involves a lot of work with students, whether in a supervising capacity, people working in the archives as, as student workers, but also students, professors that, that come in and interact with the archives in that capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of the classes do rely on primary source materials, not just history classes, but other classes as well mm-hmm. to kind of do research and, and incorporate it into their classes. How do students use the archive collections for research? I mean, I think you've you've covered it pretty well, actually. <laughs> um, we've hosted classes and individual students from, well, quite a few from history, of course, yeah. but uh, from Spanish, from French, uh, art and art history, the odd science major. I mean, they're really from from a lot of different departments around campus, uh-huh. and you know, each research question is a little bit different, and so it needs to be approached differently. But generally, my part is not just to provide access, I guess, but also to help the researcher yeah. um, learn how to navigate the finding aids and learn how mm-hmm. to how a, sort of what's, what protocols to expect when visiting a, a special collections yeah. um, facility, whether something like Grinnell or something larger like the University of Iowa or a private facility like um, the Getty Library. Mm-hmm. Um, there is not just education about the topic, but education about visiting and what's appropriate yeah. for that kind of that kind of thing too. So. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. There were a few projects during my time as a student where I enlisted your support. Uh, it was very helpful because I think it can be a little overwhelming. I mean, not just, you know, undertaking a research project, but then going to the archives and, you know, even if you have a really small topic, like I know one project I did was the history of like the co-ed dorm policy. Mm-hmm. There's so much there and like I can't look at everything that, <laughs> that's been done on it. And so it, it is helpful to have somebody to help kind of focus your vision a little bit. Well, and we do we do kind of do a lot of those uh, sort of reference interviews when people come in because it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of fun material to access down there. And so I don't want to take up more time than is necessary with, with the formalities. I really like to get the material to the researcher mm-hmm. um, and sort of get them on their journey. But uh, I really enjoy it, actually. Yeah. That's that's one of my favorite parts, I'd say. Hmm. So speaking of favorites, mm-hmm. do you have any favorite items in, in the collection, hidden gems maybe, or, or you know, compelling characters from Grinnell history that maybe <laughs> have gone overlooked that you've maybe discovered, you know, not, not the Herbie Hancocks or, or Bob Noises, but, you know, the, the little people. The little people. <laughs> um, or just any favorite, you know, rare books or, or things like that, that really as a, you know, as a nerdy library <laughs> sciences guy, you just love to geek out on. There are so many things. Um, our two oldest printed books were both printed in 1477. Okay. And um, one of them weighs in at a solid nine and a half pounds. Nice. The, the front and back covers are both made out of wood. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of manuscript waste used in the binding. And um, the paper's good, solid, thick. That one will be around a, a long time. Uh <laughs> I also really like the um, Salvador Dali illustrated Alice in Wonderland. Uh, that's pretty trippy. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of fun instances in in the college's uh, history that are kind of interesting. Um, during one student protest, I can't remember exactly when, uh, a student had gotten to the American flag flown out on the... Um, out in the open space, sort of just north of the library, and had turned the American flag upside down and flown it upside down in the you know the international uh, code of distress. Yeah. And one of the professors at the time, John Crossett, had seen that and um, 
kind of lost his cool. So he ran out and righted the flag and then clung to the flag pole for the rest of the day to prevent anybody else from, from fooling with the flag. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the fact that J.B. Grinnell was visited by um, the Underground Railroad. What was his name? John Brown. Thank you. John Brown uh, visited J.B. with some escaped slaves uh, in tow. And um, that's kind of fascinating. What um, record do we have of that? Like what? There, there are a lot of secondhand records. Okay. So newspaper articles and uh, recollections from um, towns members of the time. Mm-hmm. And JB remembers it in his uh, autobiography. So there, there aren't any that I am aware of records like I don't think he kept a diary. Yeah, no, said last personal night. correspondence. Of yeah, dear diary, you'll never guess who showed up at my doorstep <laughs> last night after dinner. Uh, nothing quite like that. But, uh-huh. uh, a lot of a lot of like I said, secondhand. Yeah, secondary sources. Uh, there are a lot of sort of little discrete episodes in the college's history that are just really fascinating. The takeover of Burling Library by the student group CBS concerned black students was a big deal and a lot of people don't understand that at the time that that happened the college administrative offices were located in burling basement Uh Um, and so a lot of a lot of people hear that and say oh yeah they were taking over the library to make a statement and and in fact um, they chained themselves inside of the building that housed the administrative offices Mm -hmm. so that the administrators had to listen to them right so thinking about what happens at the college nowadays, or at least in, in more recent history, there's so much happening, right? I mean, maybe there isn't any more happening than there used to be, but, you know, it, it feels like there's so much happening. Mm-hmm. How do you determine what to archive of, you know, the current, you know, things that are happening on, on campus? Do you have a concrete kind of system or is it a more <laughs> touch and feel individual basis? Yeah, well, we should keep track of this or not. Uh, I would love to sound totally together and say, no, we've got this plan and, and outline 38 points of my collection policy. But the fact of the matter is when collecting the college history, we use what's referred to as a, a sampling plan. Okay. So we don't try to necessarily collect every single document that has ever been printed on a college printer. But uh, we do try to collect enough about you know, each event held on campus or each uh, lecture given to give a future researcher an idea of what what was the big deal? Why is why might this have been important? With all the student led activities on campus, we try to we try to record as many of those as possible. But mm-hmm. there are so many that it, it is it's just again, that's just not feasible. So um we just try to record as many as we can and uh, hope it's good enough, I yeah. guess. It's hard to, as a person who is living in the present, understand what will be important to someone 20, 30 years from now. I mean, yeah. so some of the projects um, that the library and archives have been involved in, one of them is digitizing the, the S&B archives. Mm-hmm. You know, that happened a few years ago, but... Um, how did that process come about and why why do you think that's important to have, you know, that resource of student newspapers dating back to what, like 1894? Yeah. Available it, for people on the web. They're actually a very popular research resource because they get used by people doing genealogy oh my grandfather had stories about his time at grinnell and you know could you give me an idea of what life was like then yeah here's a link (laughs) here's a link to the newspaper or well i heard about this time that a bunch of students chained themselves in burling what was that about well here's a link to the newspaper you know i mean so it, it really it actually has generated a lot of foot traffic too because people will find it and say, I didn't have any idea this happened, or uh-huh. I didn't realize the speaker visited Grinnell. Do you have any more information about it? So it, it, it really has not been an end. 
you know, it's not like we just say to people, yeah, yeah, here, you can look at it online. Don't bother us, which would never happen anyway. But it's more like they find it or we say, well, here, here's this resource online. Let me know if you have any questions. And they come back with a whole lot of new questions, yeah. which is cool. Um, and, and I love exploring that that way. So getting that digitized and out there was, was a pretty big event. Hmm. Can you talk about the Pauchik History Preservation Project and kind of the importance of local history and how that comes into your work? Yeah. So uh, six years ago, I think, when I was still a staff person in Special Collections and Catherine Rod was the Special Collections librarian, um, we were approached by one of the librarians at the Drake Community Library. And the two libraries have always had a strong working relationship. But uh, we're always looking for ways to, to bring our two institutions, you know, even closer. And, yeah. and there is so very much interest in local history in yeah. Grinnell. And not just in Grinnell, but, but in Powshee County in general. Because there are, a lot of, there are a lot of families who have come and stayed. Mm. And there's a lot of place-based education that goes on here on campus. And so it's been a really good resource for that. Mm. Um, and it's been the stories that people tell. Oh, you know, they, they almost always start out with, no, nobody really wants to hear <laughs> that story, uh, you know, or whatever. But I don't know. We spoke to one man that first year who not only did he remember uh, Interstate 80 being paved, which really, in the grand scheme of things, wasn't all that long ago. Uh -huh. uh, he actually remembered when they paved Highway 6. And he, is, he has since passed, but he was, he was in his very late 90s when we spoke to him. Uh -huh. And he was a treasure trove of all of these. His fa he had been raised here. His family had been raised here. So he had all of these really amazing stories about the history of Grinnell. Um, so it's, I don't know. I mean, it's not everyone's thing, but I, I really enjoy talking to people about, about that because they just sort of light up and they're, they like being able to share those things with people. So Yeah. Yeah. And it's cool when, you know, what you think is just your personal story becomes relevant to other people that are interested in history. I do think it's fulfilling to, to some of the participants uh, who have donated material who, who can say, well, yeah, I mean, here's some family photographs that were taken at Merrill Park, and, yeah. you know, for whatever that's worth. But then people get really excited about the play set in the background or something. Or, oh, man, I remember when we used to go and play baseball there, you know, at the park every Sunday or something. And so um, what seems like an innocuous family photograph becomes a, a sort of a seed for a, a long historical discussion. Yeah. So it's, it's fun to see those things develop. Yeah, yeah. So I imagine you've learned a lot about Grinnell's history from working in the archives. How does that kind of knowledge that you've gained change your perspective on kind of where Grinnell's at right now in, in 2019? That's a big question. So it is a big question. <laughs> <laughs> um, it sounds trite, but I frequently have a thought along the lines of everything old is new again. Mm -hmm. um, so much of history is cyclical. Uh, not just, you know, on the world stage, but locally too. And so you see a lot of people who are upset now about a given topic are frequently upset about the same topics that maybe uh, their parents' generation or their grandparents' generation were also upset with. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe news coverage might uh, wax and wane on that given topic giving the impression that it, it has been addressed or ameliorated in some way, but then it comes back again and, and you know, it becomes clear that it hasn't been addressed. Um, I would say, especially given the college's commitment to social justice and um, how each, every couple of years, that becomes kind of a, a hot topic again. But mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is that it's been it's been an interest and a, a passion since the college was established. Mm -hmm. um, I would say too, working with the age of some of the things, not just in the college archives, but like the rare books. I mentioned the two books we have from fourteen seventy seven um, have really screwed up my sort of temporal perspective. <laughs> um, I you know you you get people on the phone who 
we'll say, well, I, I, I graduated in 1963, and that's probably a long time ago, so you may not have the information I'm looking for. And I think, 1963? Nah. That was last week. Yeah. <laughs> Try harder. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's really messed me up in that way. So. That's funny. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Grinnell in many ways has has changed quite a bit in seeing, you know, the development of certain movements and other changes through time by looking at things in the archive. It's pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's the people, places and activities that have shaped the college down there. Thinking about the items in the in the archives, how much can you glean about, you know, Grinnell's past from the kind of minutiae or like ephemera of things like like course catalogs or, or things like that that at the time you know to any student when they receive the course catalog now it's like it's a you know dry institutional <laughs> material maybe right. they don't actually read any of it mm-hmm. and it doesn't seem exciting even to maybe the average person who would who would look upon that even an old one but you know are really important to your work as an archivist when you approach a document like that what are you looking for in terms of you know like what's important here I would say over the last nine years that I've learned to sort of recognize where certain types of information are are most easily and quickly accessed. Mm. So course catalogs, for example, contain information about the classes that were taught. I think that looking at that type of resource, it's interesting to see what the type of education that was valued you know, at the beginning of when it, when uh, the college was founded in 1846, it was very sort of classics heavy, so mm-hmm. Greek, Latin, yeah, um, very spiritual when it wasn't overtly Christian, mm-hmm. um, because it was founded by uh, congregational ministers. So you know, it's it's that kind of thing. But but if you're looking at the yearbooks, for example, you might look and see which which businesses were advertising yeah <laughs> in the yearbooks at a given time so you might look in the 1940s and notice a whole bunch of business names that just don't exist in grinnell anymore yeah um so there you know there there's a lot that you can you can kind of uh wheedle out of them both about the college history but also about the the grinnell community history yeah yeah, and it's cool how like a document's intended purpose isn't always the same as what it ends up serving for you as a you know as an archivist or a historian. Like you know they might be writing about this, but you're looking at it with a whole different angle, so it means something totally different. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, those yearbooks were never designed <laughs> to be sort of time capsules of local businesses. Yeah, um, but they sure are now. Mm-hmm. They are useful when you're looking at research questions like the the codification of the dorms and when when do uh, when do dorm photos start including photos including men and women mm-hmm. as opposed to the men in here and the women are here yeah there are there's always another lens to look at a, a resource through and it's um, once you find the right lens it's always kind of interesting to see what see what there is yeah what does the term institutional memory mean to you? Honestly, uh, sometimes it means frustration. Um, (laughs) I most frequently hear that uh, coming from people who are uh, frustrated or aggravated when they don't realize that the college has an archive. Mm -hmm. And so um, people I hear say that are frustrated that... um, there's no, they don't perceive that there's a place for, for them to go to get the answers that they're looking for. Uh-huh. So usually it's, well, this place just doesn't have any institutional memory. And so I've actually, on the DL, reached out to a number of people who I've heard say that in public uh-huh. and tried to help them understand that we do, mm-hmm. you know. And maybe it's not as thorough as they may desire as I, you know, as I said, we practice sampling, so we're not going to have every single document ever produced on campus. Right. But um, we probably have something to help, you know, and it has become kind of a 
sometimes I hear it so much. I, th- I worry that it's becoming a cliche. Um, and when I hear it, I wish, I wish that I could sit down with everyone, sometimes individually, preferably in small groups, and just talk about what it means to them and ask them if they've been to the archive or if they know that the archive exists. Mm-hmm. We're not going to reach out to everybody. I mean, that's just, that's not possible. But I will say that many times, certainly not most necessarily, but many times when I hear that, that's that's what I think. And so that that's those are the thoughts that stick with me, the, the impressions that stick with me the most, I think. And we're constantly working to to fill holes in in the institutional memory. So um, I would say, for example, most recently we've been working with um, some of the students who have been active within the um, the BCC to archive their history mm-hmm. that concerned black students and and the BCC is a structure and a, and a home to the group uh, and it's the populations that they serve you know we've oh, I, I think we've made good strides but there's so much history still floating out there mm-hmm. you know and I um, I'm I'm eager for the multicultural reunion this fall mm-hmm. to be able to continue to fill those gaps in in the memory and to um, to help us move forward in a more considered way, I think, in the future. Yeah. Well, for people who who haven't been down into the basement and check out the, the special collections and uh, archives, I definitely encourage them to do so because it's it is a treasure trove of, of fascinating information. Thank you. Yeah, we try. <laughs> and I don't know if I don't know if this interview will make it into the archives, but thank you, Chris, for <laughs> for doing your part to to keep the memories alive for people and and share them. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Chris Jones is the college archivist. He mentioned the Salisbury House collection briefly. The college has since purchased over five thousand items from them, and you can read about that on the website. And that's it for this episode. Next time, we're going to talk to Dan Kaiser, Professor Emeritus of History, about a few episodes from Grinnell History that illustrate the evolving relationship between the town and college. That's next time on All Things Grinnell. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski and Poddington Bear. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at podcast at grinnell.edu or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast, for more information about the guests from today's show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians.